0: Take it the Rebels have Dooku's full attention.
1: It's a full-scale war! They need our help! Please talk to the Council.
0: Even Master Windu would be wary at this point. The Council will not engage or involve the Republic in an internal affair. The Separatists have a new gunship with a powerful ray shield. Nothing's getting past
1: it. I am sorry, Ahsoka. They will have to find a way. Do not stay there if their failure is certain. Evacuate who you can and return to Coruscant
0: immediately. Do you understand? Yes, Master! (laughs) We need to help them. We will do what we can to relocate the survivors. Before they lose their planet. We can't. What difference does it make now? The Separatists know we're involved. I don't disagree with you, Anakin, but to send in Republic gunships defeats our purpose. We must stay true to our intentions, learn our lessons. It doesn't have to look like we're the ones helping. What if another party was involved? Another party? Who in the galaxy would be running around with an extra batch of missiles? Hondo.
1: You fought in the Clone Wars?
0: Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Here we go. I have a bad feeling about this. Follow me, boys! You're not shinies anymore. Go, go, go!
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Clone Wars Strikes Back. I say good morning because I think this is probably the earliest I have ever recorded a podcast. It is currently 7.33 a.m., where I am, uh, Eastern Standard Time, and uh, I'm a bit tired, but this is The Clone Wars Strikes Back. This is the place to be for discussion about the Emmy Award-winning series, Star Wars The Clone Wars. This is, of course, the podcast where we go back and discuss each and every episode and episode arc of that show. And joining me to discuss all of this is my good friend and co-host, Kieran.
0: Good morning to you, Dominic. It is also morning here in sunny Exeter in England, but it's not quite as early as you um, are up, my friend. It's, uh, it's a nice 11 o'clock in the morning here, but I, I have to say, kudos to you for getting up so early i don't think i i could get up that early for a podcast or at least i'd have to make sure i've got a cup of coffee with me or something because that is a very very strong effort for you my friend and um probably not helped as well that you've been up in the night doing a lot of essay work yeah
1: (laughs) that doesn't help it either yeah it's it's been a been an interesting couple of weeks with the you know school wrapping up for the term and Lots of essays and all that. I'm, I'm, I'm considering it uh, preparation for Star Wars Celebration where, where there will be lots of, lots of late nights waiting in line for panels and, and all kinds of fun stuff. You know, J.J. Abrams, people like that. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. And, and, and like we, you know, we mentioned it just about each, each ep- episode on this show, you know, Star Wars celebration is coming up. We're going to be there. Uh, there's going to be a, a live Star Wars Underworld podcast, which is my other podcast and, and, and uh, we'll be at that and you should definitely come check that out. It's, it's Saturday morning of, of the celebration at 10.30 a.m. Pacific time, which is, which is like one, one PM Eastern time. So if you're on the East coast, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you're not that, you're not that unused to it. it's not it's not 7:30 a.m <laughs> or anything quite like that but uh but but let's let's get into what we are are really here to talk about and that is the Onderon arc of star wars the clone wars the first episodes of season five and you know we're 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 entering the home stretch here you know this is i i just put in the the, the second last disc of my season one to five box set there it's a uh, it's uh Brings brings a tear to your eye. But there's still lots of episodes less, left to discuss, and, and we'll start off with this Onderon arc. So, Kieran, do you have episode descriptions for us this week?
0: I do indeed, Dominic, and we'll start with the first episode in this four-part arc entitled a War on Two Fronts. Anakin, Obi-Wan, Ahsoka, and Rex travel to Onderon, a world under Separatist control. There, they will train a group of insurgent rebels, including Lux Bonteri, to help take back the capital city of Isis from the rule of a duplicitous king. The second episode in this four-part arc is entitled Front Runners. Supervised by Ahsoka, the Onderon rebels infiltrate the capital and carry out a series of strikes on targets throughout the city. As the Separatist-aligned king comes under increasing pressure to deal with the growing rebellion, the rebels choose a new leader. The third episode in this four-part arc is named The Soft War. After a rebel attempt to rescue Ondoran's true king, Ramses DenDub, an unexpected ally steps forward to halt DenDub's execution and aid the rebel cause. And the final episode in this four-part arc is entitled Tipping Points. As a full-scale revolt embroils Onderon, the Rebels strike a decisive blow against the planet's separatist-aligned king. Unfortunately for the Rebels, such victory comes at a high
1: price. Yeah, uh, one of the more tragic arcs, I would say, of of the entire series. But let's start off the way we always do with our initial impressions of the arc, and, and have our impressions of the arc changed in the, well... I guess this would have premiered in 2012, so three years now since uh, since they first aired. So, Kieran, uh, initial impressions on the Onderon arc?
0: Okay. Initial impressions on the Onderon arc. I think this is a fantastic arc, and I certainly appreciate this arc a lot more in yeah. hindsight. And I think a lot of credit has to go to Star Wars Rebels and the crew and the behind-the-scenes team because – that show really adds a lot of depth to this particular arc, and there's a lot more in terms of the themes that are brought up in this in the Clone Wars arc, um, but also in terms of character development, which really um, is is so crucial and vital to the uh, to what we later see in the Star Wars Rebels series and later on with regards to the Rebels and Empire, because it really touches upon something which is critical here, and we actually focus upon the element of the rebellion, the rebellion which, of course, is such a fascinating topic to discuss. I mean, where exactly were were their roots? How did they form? How were they assembled? Those were all questions that really wasn't delved into within the prequel trilogy, at least. Um, briefly, in the deleted scenes, of course, for Episode 3, there was considering... Uh, There was a consideration of the rebels on the politics side, but nothing really on the military side. And I think we really get to explore those different avenues and themes in the Onderon arc, which is so fascinating when we consider how the the Onderon rebels aligned with the Jedi actually overthrow and topple a separatist regime and in place restore order based upon and... Onderan governmental system or well I mean at the end of course they touch upon the fact that they're going to align themselves with the republic but um, <laughs> which always leads to foreshadows of what's going to occur later <laughs> in the empire but at least it seems that the methods they were using and the people the insurgents which were involved were principally Onderan based not republic based and I think it's something that's a little bit different to what we're used to but Just to abridge that, really, in terms of my initial impressions, I thought it was a superb arc and it really does exhibit the roots of the rebellion, which is always such an intriguing and fascinating subject to talk about. So, Dominic, I'll throw it over to you now. What were your initial impressions of this arc when it aired in 2012 and have your impressions changed over time?
1: Yeah, for me this is this is one of those arcs that I think is, is is really good. I won't put it in my, you know, top 5 or top 10 uh, arcs of the series, but I do think it it pro- provided a lot of interesting insight into, you know, the the politics of of individual planets because there seemed to be at times a bit of a disconnect between what the senator from the planet was doing in previous episodes and, and what the king of the planet was doing. And, and we'll get into that later on, but it, it provides some interesting insight that, I, that I want to discuss. And it also, you know, like you mentioned, it really gave us some, some insight into how the rebellion got started, how the, the Jedi kind of trained some of the first uh insurgents out there that I think we can assume would be among the cells that, uh that Bail Organa is getting, is putting together on a, uh, on star Wars rebels on uh, the TV series to put into some kind of bigger, bigger plan that we eventually see play out in the films. So, so yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting arc. It's a good arc, lots of great action. Um, and like I mentioned off the top, it's, it's really tragic. The ending, you know, we'll get into this. It's, it's almost, in, in some ways, it's kind of out of nowhere. You know, it, it just kind of happens, which is a, 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 you know, it's a reality of war, but it's a, it's kind of depressing on a, on a TV series, but we'll get into all of that. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, connections between this, this episode and, and Star Wars Rebels. And now that we're about a season into Rebels, uh, it's interesting to look back on this one now and, and see where we've been and, and, and where we're heading with, with Rebels. Uh, I'm just sort of curious if you want to expand a little bit on, on some of the, the ways that Rebels has enhanced your appreciation of this arc. Uh,
0: that's a very, very good question, I have to say. I think there are so many different elements which make so much more sense when it comes to looking at how the dots really connect together between this arc and Star Wars Rebels, the TV series. One of them, which you've already touched upon, is this concept of rebel cells. Right. So actually exploring individual groups really individual factions and seeing how they themselves work on a personal basis and ha- and rather um, rather than seeing seeing them in some sort of Unified or alliance, which we will later see in episode four. So, right. as I said, talking about the seeds of the rebellion, really, it didn't mm. all just come together. That there was, you know, everyone from different systems suddenly just banded together and thought, "Yeah, yeah, we want to take down the <laughs> Empire." It 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 took place over a period of time, and it took time as well to actually formulate links between those factions. So, I think that I can remember initially when I was watching this episode, or actually when many people were watching this episode, when they said, well, hang on a minute, I thought this was to do with how the Rebel Alliance was formed. Why Why is it only considering one group, one faction? And it's really only in hindsight when you actually explore how the Rebel Alliance is assembled that you can really appreciate the fact that we're only examining one particular cell. And the same way in Star Wars Rebels, that the group that we consider on the Ghost is one particular cell. And it's really only in that final episode, Fire Across the Galaxy, that we're able to, talk about Star Wars Rebels here, that we're able to find out that there are a number of groups which hadn't quite formed links yet, but I'm sure that in season two of that TV series, it will showcase how the ties are beginning to be unified, how they're beginning to be interlinked. So that's one particular element. But the second element, the main element I want to discuss before I throw it over to you, Dominic, is... Ahsoka Tano, and I think that, well, well, and, and the Jedi, really, I think, in general, I guess, but really epitomized by Ahsoka, how the Jedi really not only helped formulate this group, but in a way, led it, when you consider that it was down to the training of the Jedi in a war on two fronts, which really enhanced the skills of the rebels, which made them capable of fighters, able to contain and able to curb the Separatist despot uh, system which had been implemented in this on this system really under the rule of king rash they were able to overcome that and reclaim their planets and that was down to really jedi help and support really quite implicitly at times but explicitly in others whether it was a soaker in the execution scene or what would have been the execution of king den dub scene when she came in and saved general Tadin. Uh actually I didn't pronounce his name right. Is this Taldin is his name? I,
1: I don't know. I I was just calling him the general. <laughs> call in the ge- We'll call
0: in the General the for general. argument's sake. Uh apologies, you feel free to email in and let us know what his name is. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in terms of the Jedi support and how it was epitomized by Ahsoka, I just think it's so poetic and and it, it seems so logical to actually have Ahsoka really being at the forefront of this particular rebel cell group and what we're labelling as really the inaugural seeds of the rebellion, and then to later see in Rebels that Ahsoka is the Jedi who is leading the factions and bringing them together. I think it, it makes so much rational sense, and I do love that aspect. I'd be intrigued to see how and when the Rebels decided that Ahsoka was going to come back, whether they actually looked at the Onderon arc and thought, hmm, I think we could have Ahsoka because of the fact that she's already led a Rebel cell group, she has has experience in this field, and she has empathy towards them, which is really witnessed in this arc. So all of that really just delves together to... And when i well, really, a bridges together really to make a, a fantastic art for Ahsoka more than anything else in terms of character development, how it does follow this logical trajectory. And when Obi Wan says that the in the final episode, this has been quite a journey for our Padawan. In more ways than one, that line is more reflective not just of Ahsoka's character development as a Jedi, but more as a leader of a Rebel Force. Yeah. So I'd, I'll throw it back to you, Dominic. I might have touched on a, a few points there, but, um, do, were there any similarities that you agree with in terms of my points or do you have any others that
1: you'd like to raise as well? Well, well, first things first, it's General Tandon. We'll just get that out there right now so you can we stop go. emailing. It's okay. We know it. We, we looked it up on Wikipedia. We got it. General Tandon. Um, but, but what you mentioned a couple of times, you know, the Jedi were the ones that were, were creating the rebellion. Uh, I I think I remember it was Dave Filoni who brought this up when these episodes first came out. That you know, it's it's kind of ironic that Anakin is is the one who is really pushing for this to happen. You know, it's it's Anakin and Mace. Uh, of course, those two agree on on this, but nothing else. But it's Anakin who's who's pushing for this to happen. It's his idea, and then he's going to wind up fighting them and and losing to them as Darth Vader. So it's one of those I- ironic things where his his past basically comes back to to bite him because he he uh, you know, he created this group of rebels and you know, this cell obviously pr- they probably have more experience than a lot of the other cells, I would think. You know, they fought during the clone wars. They uh they they had the the training of the Jedi and a clone trooper and you know, there's a lot more than you know, you look at the crew of the ghost, yeah, they have, they, they have training, but they, they don't really, I, I, I would still, you know, in a, in a battle, you'd probably want these guys more than you'd want the crew of the ghost. You, you want both, ideally, but I would probably take these guys because they seem to be, one, they seem to be more, there seem to be more numbers and, and, and two, because, because of this experience. Um, but, but that being said, you know, I, I would love to see these guys turn up in Rebels. I think that would be a great callback. Um, who knows? Maybe that's how Ahsoka got hooked up with the rebels. Is she was hanging out on Andor? she uh, she avoided the uh, Order sixty six because she went somewhere where there were no clones, or, or maybe she just you know avoided Order sixty six. They see these are these are the questions. These are the the in between area that we we hope to one day find out. But who knows? Uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's interesting to look at those connections now that, you know, we have a bit of Rebels under our, under our belt. But it'll be really interesting to look back at these episodes once Rebels is finished. Because then we'll, you know, this episode, like you said, in, in some ways kind of laid the groundwork for another TV series. Uh, which, which is really interesting. Um, Exactly. And it's something you only really consider in hindsight,
0: which is why I think that over time these episodes, Work so well, and people have become yeah. a lot more fond towards them because, as you said, it really laid the foundations for something much bigger.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It it created the, it created the building blocks basically, and and who knew? Who knows if at the time they were really thinking about it? Because you know, I, I remember back to you know around when these episodes were coming out, they were saying, you know, this is the official story of how the Rebel Alliance came to be, and it was sort of like almost that there wasn't a plan for rebels at the time uh they just sort of had this this idea of you know the rebels would be a bunch of sort of cells that came together a rebel alliance and uh and and they kind of were able to take that idea and spin it off into its own series with a whole new set of rebels but let's in in this episode's really they they kick off really um hitting you over the head with the uh, the uh, terrorist versus freedom fighter debate which is a a really interesting uh interesting topic to to discuss in in the terms of these episodes because they throw some very striking imagery at us. Um well for for starters they have the um Andoran rebels be uh, or the Andoran people be afraid of the rebels, which is not what we're used to because you know we as the audience know that these are the good guys. These are the guys you should be supporting. You should you should cheer for them not the droids. And then secondly you, you have the image uh, and I remember this stuck out to me even the first time I watched it, of a bunch of Andron people standing around a, a burning droid tank and, and cheering it, which is not something we associate in our in our own media with uh with the good guys. Usually we, we see that and it's it's people burning, you know, Western material uh somewhere some 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 place somewhere, whether it's you know an American flag or something, and, and you, you kind of have that interest. So it's interesting to sort of flip that on its on its head. And and I, I'm just curious, how do you think the show handled that whole topic of of terrorist versus freedom fighter?
0: I think it was it was an interesting topic to really bring up because as you said, it is that gray area, the idea of a or the concept of a terrorist versus a freedom fighter.
1: Yeah.
0: And really, a lot of it, I think, is based on perceptions. Absolutely. Particularly the perceptions of the administration towards these rebel fighters, or terrorists, as they call them. Mm -hmm. But also, when you look at it from the perspective of the rebels themselves, they don't see themselves as terrorists. They see themselves as trying to fight for freedom. That's what their ultimate goal is, and that's to free Onderon from a cruel, tyrannical, Repressive regime, which has been installed by Count Dooku and his separatist hordes. Mm-hmm. So it's it really is all about perceptions, and I do really love that scene between Saw Gerrera and the General in that yes complex room where they discuss this, and um, and Saw brings up the point and says, you know, I'm not a terrorist. Uh, I'm a freedom fighter, and you're the one who's actually oppressed. Yeah. And, you know, generals and, and in turn, a general saying, no, I am free. And, and it is really based on the perceptions between those aspects. And of course, these are really quite tough topics to explore and actually to put in, put into an episode and exhibit them as, I, I guess, as, as authentic as possible, really, because they're such grand and, and, and difficult complex themes really there's yeah there's, there's so much to them it's so complicated and to actually put it into a 22 minute episode or i know overall it's an 88 minute arc but to put it into a kid well as people would call it a kid's tv show it's uh it's obviously going to be quite hard to grasp when you're a youngster but even now like you it, it's, it's just so interesting to see how these two factions have really debated over what you would call these people, whether it's terrorists or whether you call them freedom fighters, and really just put yourself into into the minds of both sets of characters there to to really empathize with both of their situations. But ultimately, we're obviously rooting for the for the rebel cause. But yeah. when you see people like the general, who are clearly shrewd and capable individuals who aren't necessarily as repressive and and cruel as the regime which had been installed on Onderon, uh, the lights of the general, um, you actually begin to understand why some of these people would actually support such a tyrannical regime, um, such as the armed forces, who obviously they later become dissuaded with it. But yeah. I think mean, the main point to really emphasize then is the perception aspect. It's really all about perceptions, and and you have to formulate your own views as a result. And what I do like about it is that they're offering two sides of a of the coin here and leaving really the audience to decide which one to choose, I guess. Yeah. But Dominic, over to you. What did you, what did you make of the terrorist versus the freedom fighter argument?
1: Well, I, I'm glad they brought it up because I think it's an important discussion to have, you know, every, every now and again, you have the, you see something go viral online of, you know, were the rebels terrorists for blowing up the death star and, and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's, it's an interesting sort of thing to examine of, well, for imperial supporters yeah they're they're terrorists and it would you know on rebels the tv series they they don't go as far as to use that term uh they do stick to using rebels or insurgents or 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 things like that they don't throw around the the terrorist term and and and, uh, you know i I wonder if that if that is a result of of perhaps who owns the company now (laughs) um not not to say that not to say that it is but you know, it, it is interesting to sort of look at Reb- rebels where they had opportunities to, to to throw that around, but I guess you know at the same time with rebels, you don't want to. I don't know. I am digging myself into a hole here. I'll, I'll get away from that and, and get back into these episodes. I, I I think that they handled it very well, and I, th- I think you are right that they sh- sort of showed it from both perspectives, and it was very interesting to sort of see uh characters we associate as bad guys. Sort of the separatists taking on the stance of you know we don't negotiate with terrorists and, and all that stuff that we tend to associate with uh, quote unquote good guys, um you know the the people that are, are are leading the the fight against terror you know like that kind of stuff and I, I think it sort of it raises some interesting questions because in these episodes we're we're rooting for the the terrorists we're, we're rooting for the for the Andoran rebels but I think. At the same time they did a very good job of showing that the Andron Onderon rebels were not terrorists. They were showing that the uh that the separatists the separatists that King Rash and, and all those guys, they were throwing that term around as a means to scare the populace. They were using it as a way to uh you know, keep the rebels from achieving any level of success. When in actuality the rebels were out there trying to avoid causing terror. They were trying to get people to join their cause and to support them. Because they weren't going to kill the people, whereas the separatists and king rash they were going to they were they were they were willing to sacrifice the population, but the rebels weren't, and you know the rebels only ever attacked droids, they only ever attacked droid things like the uh the uh, power station you know so it wasn't like they were going after the people so we we you know we definitely knew in these episodes right from wrong, we knew who the good guys were um but it was just interesting to see the way they were kind of flipping the terms around and and it, you know it it's it's good it does what star wars should do it it creates discussion it creates people gets people thinking and you know it you know clone wars is a quote unquote kids show it's on a on a kids network and all that so you know if if kids are exposed to this maybe it will get them thinking and you know we need more people thinking about these things and not just blindly following uh and and I think that's sort of the purpose of of any time the the, the show delves into more serious matters like this, or more real world matters like this, or like when we had those banking episodes, uh, you know, with 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 deregulation and all that, is it gets people thinking and it gets people to, uh, you know, be more aware of things just because they've been exposed to it already, even if it was in the galaxy far, far away. And so I, I think the show, um, especially this time around, around, did a very good job of of uh, of handling this really philosophical question of you know what's the difference uh between a, a freedom fighter and a terrorist and and I think they they handled it well but but let's talk a, a bit about um planetary politics <laughs> that's what everybody wants to talk about right well you know there there was something interesting that sort of stuck out to me in these episodes and you know some may call it a, a plot hole i'm not going to I, I think it more just opens up the door for for discussion about how these things work because i I'm, I'm sure there is an explanation in there somewhere uh but we know that Mina bonteri was the andoran senator and in in the uh in the separatist parliament so she was a a true and and we know that she was a true believing separatist through and through you know she believed in the cause she believed in, that the republic was corrupt and that duku and and his and 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 her fellow fellow separatist senators were the non corrupt ones. They were going to create this utopian other world, or other other political system outside the republic, where they would do things away from the corporations and away from from greed and 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 corruption and all that. So we know that that was she was sort of an idealistic uh separatist. But in this and and that she had a seat in the separatist parliament. But in this episode. We have King Dendub. So he, I guess, is the one who decides what side his planet would fight for when the war was starting out. But he chooses not to choose a side, but Mina was the separatist senate. So did, my question is, how did Mina Bonteria get to be in the separatist parliament? was was Anderon taken by force and then she was installed as a as a senator and then sort of drank the Kool-Aid once she went over to Raxus? I I mean it, it, or or was there some kind of disagreement between her and, and Dendub? but then Dendub seems to have a great deal of respect for her, you know. He tells Lux that, you know, your mother would have been proud. I I'm curious this, as to how this sort of works between the relationship between the senator and the, the king or queen of a planet because, I mean, the king or queen seems to be more or less the, the, the leader of the planet and the senator is is the representation in, in the galactic government and, and they speak on the behalf of the leader. Um, so I, I I'm curious if you have any – if you can provide me with any insight into how this all works.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it really? Just understanding who really possesses the power in – a, on a planet, really? Is it more to do with the senator or is it the the king or the monarch? I think what we can see, particularly based upon the rule of um, King Rash and DenDub dub in the past, it seems as though the monarch is the true leader of the planet. Yes. And so really their will is what presides over... All things, pretty much, on that planet. But what I think is that the Senate senator seems to be, as you said, representative of the planet and incorporates themselves, particularly within foreign or overseas politics, um, particularly in the Galactic Senate, as it were. And in terms of this this argument between neutrality. And actually choosing a side. I thought that was quite an interesting one. Um, how Dub didn't actually choose a side. It was chosen for him in the end. Mm-hmm. And you just wonder what that really says about the galactic politics and how that really works. Because well, given this ultimatum to Onderon, does it implicitly suggest that a similar Ultimatum was given across a number of star systems that they had to choose a side. If they didn't, then they would become they would become taken over, occupied. Whether that, I mean, I don't know. Whether, I'm trying to look back in in, in, in well, throughout the series of neutral of neutral planets. Well, but, with, jump in, Dominic.
1: Yeah, well, with neutral planets, we did have the whole uh, situation on Mandalore in season two, where yes, they they did not have any official representation in either parliament uh the only time sabine went to S- <laughs> satin not sabine Sateen went to the republic was to ask them to stay away basically but we know at the same time that previously and count dooku were planning on taking over uh mandalore for the separatists so you know it, it, there are these neutral worlds that exist and they don't necessarily have to choose but it seems that both the Republic and the Separatists are looking for any excuse to take over these plants and to get them to join their cause. So, um, so you know, you almost wonder if perhaps, you know, they Andron seceded from the Republic prior to the big sort of Separatist crisis, or maybe. Uh, yeah, prior to the big separatist crisis, but never actually joined the separatist alliance, and was sort of became this neutral planet because it's highly implied that Padme and 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 Mina have some kind of relationship from working together in the Senate. So I, I feel like there's just a chunk of Andoran history that is missing here. That you know we we need someone from the story group to to come in and and just fill in this one little little gap because I I do feel like there is something missing that 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 i'm just there's just a missing piece right now to to fully understanding how this all works because it it does seem a bit odd that you have you know a separatist believer through and through in the separatist parliament representing this planet and yet the king is saying that he couldn't decide he didn't or he didn't want to decide whether to choose the republic or the separatists and as a result the separatists took over so you know, maybe the Separatists took over because they, they knew, uh, Mina Bonteri had some kind of, uh, or was sympathetic to them, or maybe, did, you know, make Mina Bonteri's character a little bit deeper, a little, give her a little more backstory. Um, she, you know, she had some connections with the Separatists. Her husband fought alongside them. So maybe she, uh, suggested that the Separatists come to Andoran and take over. And when that happened, You know, she, she she basically betrayed Dendub, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's lots of possible explanations here, but none of them seem to to fit perfectly. And, and, and that's all I'm saying. Cause I, I, you know, I, again, I don't want to say this is a plot hole. I don't want to just pick on, pick on the show, but I, I, I does, it was one of those things that kind of made me go, huh. And, 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 you know, I've been trying to puzzle it out for for you know well you know i haven't been thinking about since since the episodes aired or anything but you know since i last watched them i've been trying to trying to puzzle it out and and uh and figure out you know well i've been getting ready for the show and i can't find an answer yet so i don't know maybe maybe we'll maybe we'll find pablo hidalgo and, and leland Chi at at star wars celebration and and, and ask them and, and get an answer but who knows um Anyways, let's let's talk a bit about the Jedi. Uh, you know, we we've mentioned, you know, the Jedi's role in all this a couple times, but I, I think it's it's really interesting to see the Jedi, Jedi sort of grappling with this. Because they are, I guess, in in some ways are are they, they seem to think they're sacrificing their morals. Um I'm not sure they necessarily are. I think they more just don't want to get involved because of the politics. So I th- and, and then they, they go to Onderon and they don't actually, you know, they're like, we're here just to defend. And yet, you know, they're out there fighting alongside, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're just deflecting blaster bolts and, and Ahsoka, but then Ahsoka is out there, you know, being almost a, a beacon of hope for the people, you know, it, it's kind of like the Jedi are trying to be a little bit pregnant. You know, it's either you are or you aren't. They are, they're either in on Andron or they're not. And I think what we're seeing here is an, yet another example of the Jedi Order being, uh, stuck in this situation where they have to essentially just be another arm of the Grand Army of the Republic.
0: It seems to be that way, doesn't it? The Jedi I mean how much or a- autonomous power do they have in relation to the republic has always been the question that's asked, and as you said, it seems to be more an instrument or a tool used by the chancellor in particular to further his goals and uh, meet meet them meet their ends, so to speak. I think it's interesting how the jedi seem to be doing this covertly and under wraps really that they don't they don't want to see will be seen sponsoring these rebels or these insurgents. And, uh, it, it, I mean, because the Jedi themselves don't want to be seen necessarily supporting, quote-unquote, in government perspective, terrorists. We've obviously right. touched upon that debate on on whose perspective you're looking at here. But from the governmental side of things, or particularly from the Senate side of things, it seems that they're sponsoring terrorists and... Um I, I mean that, that's not their personal agenda, but the Jedi, the Jedi want to help but they know that they're restricted and they have their tie, their hands tied behind their back really. So, when Master Yoda agrees to dispatch Anakin, Obi-Wan and Ahsoka to Onderon, it's really to train, observe, vigilantly, and then leave them to him And Ahsoka's only an advisor. She's not supposed to get involved unless it's absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. And which, throughout
1: this again, arc, that, that kind of sorry to interrupt, but that that goes back to what I was saying about you know being a little bit pregnant. It's it's like she either can get involved or she can't. If this experiment is supposed to work the way that the Jedi want to, which is just for them to observe to see how the Andron rebels do on their own, then Ahsoka can't get involved at all. She basically has to you know sit in the corner and watch. Um, and yet they're saying you know get if it's absolutely necessary then you can get involved and you know when she does that um when I, I i we can debate whether it was absolutely necessary for her to to rescue the general there i i i don't know if it necessarily was i i i you know for her i can absolutely see why um she would do that and and, and all that i don't know if it was necessarily if necessarily necessary uh, i think you know if, if the general had been killed it could have been a uh, he could have been a martyr for for the the Andoran rebels, but at the same time, you know, if the general is killed, then th- that could just be the the first shot in the uh, you know the droid massacring the people on on Andoran, or you know, putting the Andoran the people on Andoran into sort of like a back into the. Where they're afraid to stand up, because you know when Ahsoka shows up with her lightsabers, you know she inspires everybody. You know the people see the lightsabers, they see the Jedi, they know what that means. It's like in Star Wars Rebels when Kanan pulls out his lightsaber and spark of rebellion, everybody stops and looks at it, even the stormtroopers, because they know what that symbol means. You know, it means hope, and you know, so Ahsoka kind of by by showing herself like that, she kind of ruined the experiment. And then the Jedi almost kind of wanted to keep this experiment going in the next episode, you know, because they were still trying to play it like they were just there to observe. Really, you know, there's a battle going on with the Separatists. Um Why can't they go in and get involved? You know, the, the Jedi's mandate, which is keepers of the peace, is a, is another is just such a strange um uh, such a strange sort of mandate, because what does that actually mean? Like, what, what does keeping just keepers of the peace mean? You know, if there's, because, because if there's this war going on on Andron between rebels and, and the separatists, shouldn't they, shouldn't that be somewhere where the Jedi go to intervene? That seems like something they should do, you know, in, even in Episode One, where there's the blockade of the Trade Federation around the planet Naboo, who goes to to negotiate it? That's a Jedi thing. That seems like it should be a Jedi thing. And again, it goes back to the fact that they are have just basically at this point become an arm of the Grand Army of the Republic, and they can't get involved because if they go, then all of a sudden it's a Republic invasion of Andorran, and it's an official battle, and then it looks like the Andre then it looks like they're. They're overthrowing what the people of Andron had chosen as their government, even though they were really helping. But the perception out there would be that they were overthrowing the government and they can't have that because that would look bad on the republic, yada, 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 war, wartime problems. And, uh, you know, it, it's just sort of this, this odd kind of situation that the Jedi are in where they just can't, it seems like they just can't act. You know, they're trying to do things, but anytime they try and do things, they're, they're kind of only doing half.
0: Do you know what fascinates me about all of this, though, is that we're discussing about how the Jedi have initiated this experiment. And as you've rightly said, there's this clear juxtaposition or at least uh, contradiction within the Jedi. That's more an apt term, wherein you are supposed to observe and watch and not intervene, but you can intervene if you really, really need to. And of course, it's very difficult to quantify what that necessarily entails. So, yeah. as you said, whether saving a general would be uh, would count as being absolutely necessary is up for interpretation and debate. I personally think it wasn't. I think it would be more appropriate in the scene earlier when she was about to draw her lightsabers at the execution yeah. of king DenDub, that would be more absolutely necessary yeah, because rebel cause seem to be all out of hope then but anyway that's, it's neither here nor there to what i necessarily want to speak about what i want to say is that it's fascinating really to showcase how the experiment would have failed if ahsoka wasn't really there i think Or the Jedi themselves weren't there because they helped organize them, they helped assemble (laughs) them, and obviously Ahsoka got involved. But at the same time, would you argue, could you also argue that the rebel cause that we later see rising up against the Empire, uh, isn't isn't there parallels in the sense that that wouldn't have been successful or triumphant were it not for the help of the Jedi? Were it not for Ahsoka leading the factions together? Were it not for Luke Skywalker getting involved? Yoda, Obi-Wan? The Jedi, in a way, may not be as explicit or directly militarily got involved in the same way they did in the Clone Wars. But the Jedi was necessary to further the ends and meet the ends of the Rebel cause. I don't, well, I don't know no what you think about that, but that's really what I can glean from looking at this arc in particular, compar- in comparison towards the Star Wars Rebels TV series and the films.
1: Well, yeah, you know, it kind of, it kind of goes back to, to the very first episode to ambush where, what is it, um, King, uh, King Katunko says something along the lines of, you know, one Jedi is worth a thousand droids. And, and we kind of see that happening both in this and in the, and, and in the rebellion against the empire later on is just the importance of the Jedi being there, which is, which is kind of what makes this whole experiment so frustrating is that the Jedi, who are essentially the trump card in all of this are trying to avoid playing, they're trying to avoid getting involved. You know, they're, they're telling Ahsoka not to get involved, to, 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 to just stay and monitor. They, they almost, you almost get the sense that, Je- that the Jedi were willing to sacrifice the entire, uh, you know, the entire Andoran, uh, army or the, uh, the, rebellion, uh, if, if that meant it was sort of their, their understanding of, of uh, uh, if it would increase their understanding of, of this experiment, which again seems to me to absolutely go against the Je- Jedi code, which uh, would be to g- go in there and and you know save as many innocent lives as possible, and, and you know it it just seems to me like it it was a, a mistake, and you know. Why couldn't the, the Republic invade Andron? That's the other thing. Why couldn't the Republic invade Andron? We've seen them go into planets that have clearly sided with the separatists and, and fight them. I mean, for God's sake, look at Imbara. It, it it just seemed like there was a lot of political maneuvering going on here, possibly by the Republic, you know, just not wanting to help Andron because Andron abandoned them. I could definitely say, see that being a, a possibility. And then that's why. The Andron rebels were, were so quick to turn to the Jedi. Now that being said, at the beginning of these episodes, Andron clearly didn't want help from the Republic. And we sort of see that a bit of that separation that may have once existed between the Republic and the Jedi. Um, and that Andron is that Lux and Steela and saw they all call for, they call for Jedi, not for clone troopers. So it's, it's interesting in that sense that there seems to be. Again, this just show goes to show how broken the Jedi Order is at the by, you know so that by the time of, of Revenge of the Sith, you know it, it, the fact that it gets leveled basically, um, isn't all that surprising, and it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, in December of this year, how, if at all, it has evolved, um, if it's even. Or even if it's ever been restarted, you know, that that's a definite possibility that, you know, Luke Skywalker may have never restarted a Jedi Order in the sense that we saw in the prequel trilogy. Because, well, look what happened. Look what happened to the last one. It, it became so corrupt and so in bed with the politics of, of the Republic that it, that it fell, that it fell at the hands of the Sith. And, and so it, it really, I, I think, you know, this episode, these episodes you don't necessarily think okay these are about the failures of the Jedi but really in some ways they really are it really illustrates very clearly for you know, a lot better than other episodes um just how how broken this order is
0: yeah i completely agree with you there it, the, the the disparity between the jedi and the republic really has been insinuated, I think, in this arc. It doesn't directly express it or articulate it towards the audience in such a way as we see an argument between a Jedi and a Chancellor, but we can see that how the perception of systems towards the Jedi and the Republic is still relatively distinct. But I think that... What we see later on in Episode Three, when the Chancellor states that it was the Jedi that tried to overthrow him, you get to a point there where you hit the apex of the of the disparity and the and the conflict between the Republic and the Jedi, really showing them as two uh, di- different institutions, but institutions which are in utter conflict and confrontation. Rather than unified and collaborating together, so again, it's it's just another example of that, as you've rightly stated.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, you know, it's one of those things. The Jedi and, and the Republic should be two separate things that work together on occasion. Instead, they've kind of become one thing that kind of that 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 one side is sort of resisting, whereas. You know you can bet that the the Republic would love the Jedi to just sort of be the official security force of the of the Galactic Republic, but you know the Repo- the Jedi are still trying to sort of cling idealistically to their to their morals, which they should um or at least some of them are or they're at least paying lip service to their to their morals while uh while they become what they swore not to be uh, which is just security or warriors in a lot of cases. Uh, or soldiers, I guess would be the right term there. Uh, but let's, let's talk about some of these, these Andron rebels. Um, you know, we've made it this far into the episode without talking about the three sort of main characters on Andron with, with, which would be Lux and Saw and Steela. Well, let's, let's start with Saw because Saw was kind of an interesting character. He was, he was the one who, you know, he, he believed he should be leader. Um, but, you know, he sort of lacked the right qualities. He was a little bit too, to rash and <laughs> king rash um he, he was just kind of he wasn't the right fit and, and so i'm curious what was your take on on old saw Gerrera? so saw
0: guerrera i thought he was a very complex and interesting character and i think he really gave off the vibe of a mixture i think of Han Solo and anakin skywalker qualities but predominantly anakin skywalker in terms of the brashness the emotional side of him, the inability really to, at some points, put the mission ahead of his own, his own feelings, as we've stated, uh, based upon his inability to accept initially Steeler being a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same way that, you mentioned this earlier, Dominic, how Anakin wanted, well, how Anakin wanted to become a master. And when he didn't get that title bestowed upon him, he became angry and, indignant yeah so i think those are similar qualities between those two characters but what i do like about saw guerrera is that he is a true fighter mm. and i think he really displayed some jedi-esque moves particularly <laughs> in that scene at the beginning of soft war when he destroyed blows up that tank shoots a number of battle droids and i think that's that's part partly testament to the improvements visually in the animation of the clone wars team they're able to Make action set pieces seem so cinematic, really. I think that's a big kudos to the Clone Wars team in that regard. But well, I, I, I did enjoy it, uh, Saw Guerrera's character, really. I think that um, his loyalty towards the King was certainly admirable. Um, he, you know, when they, when he has the conversation with King Dendub and obviously the conversation with General, the, that there are certain elements to Saw which you can appreciate. He's fighting for a worthy cause. He sees himself as a freedom fighter. And even at the end of it, when, he has to, when his sister dies, um, he's still pragmatic enough to really accept that and you know, thanks Ahsoka's help for everything she's done as a Jedi towards their cause. Whereas I could see some other characters after a relative is, is deceased Turning their back on those who have supported them in that time, whether it would be the Jedi, and blaming it on some on blaming it on somebody else. But he seems to take a far more rational approach than some of the other characters, which we've clearly explored in throughout the series. Anakin again being a case in point, I guess. Yeah, I'll throw it over to you, Dominic, and allow you to give your thoughts on Saw Gerrera.
1: Yeah, I think he hit on the right point there—that he's very much like Anakin you know he 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 has a lot of the same similar qualities and that he's a great fighter but he's not necessarily uh cut out for for leadership yet you know there's there's still possibly hope for him but i, I think you're right that you know his his uh his his ultimate uh, sort of redeeming quality is that he you know is able to uh, or that that you know he he doesn't seem to really lash out after Stila's death he he seems to be you know, he mourns her, but he seems also like he's ready to move on and 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 deal with the next chapter in his life and in the uh, the existence of Andron. So I I think that was a it was a, like you said he was a is a deep character and and I think that was good to see. Uh, but let's let's talk about his sister, so, or <laughs> uh, Stila Guerrera. Um She was she was definitely a a standout character from this arc. I think I, I think she uh, she really. Uh, she really embodied sort of the best qualities of leadership and 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 all that but you know at the same time she she wasn't perfect either you know we saw her her struggles with uh with uh with some of the more technical aspects or with the uh, with with throwing the the um, droid poppers under the under the uh under the destroyer so you know it, it it's not like uh she's not like one of those characters who can just uh doing do everything she's not a jedi Yet. (laughs) Well, no, it's not that she would ever become a Jedi. Um, But uh, um, what what was your take on on Stila? Stila
0: was a fantastic character. She really displayed the qualities that was necessary if you want to become a leader, particularly of this rebel cell. Uh, She had the diplomatic side of Lux Bonteri and the militant fighting spirit of her brother as well. And I think the combination of those characteristics were essential, particularly if you want to display the right leadership qualities that would be necessary to emerge victorious in the campaign that they were leading. I I, I think that it made sense out of the three candidates of Sword, and Steeler and Lux for her to ascend and take that mantle on as the, as the hegemon of this group. And Steeler herself... Obviously, there's this interesting interaction she has with Lux Bonteri, where, well, at first it was a little bit strange in hindsight, but it seemed there was a love triangle between Steeler, Saw, and Lux until obviously (laughs) we found out that Saw was her brother. Uh, I don't understand how Lux didn't really find that out before we get to that point in the end of the second episode. I... I thought it might be a point that you would one would have understood and found out at the beginning, but there you go. Maybe that's my naivete coming out there. Who knows? But I think with with that interaction between Lux and Steel is very interesting, and of course it's it's quite reminiscent, really, of Han and Leia at times. Or am am I reading too much into that? I mean, obviously some of the lines that were used were emulate well. were we're mirroring what we've already witnessed in the original trilogy for certain particularly the, you know, don't look at me that way, Uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable That's that's
1: a prequel trilogy line, isn't it though?
0: Oh yeah (laughs) Yeah, okay, Come on, that, come on! I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not a true fan, am I? Well, I was going to say I blame it on the time, but you're the one who's up <laughs> yeah, at like yeah. 7.30 in the morning and you've got that. Yeah, it is a prequel. But, uh, well, all also, so I will say is, it was certainly a line that stood out to me because I've heard it before. Yes. But I just heard it in a wrong place. But, um, yeah, it is definitely a Padme line, that one. Um yeah. But, no, <laughs> I don't think Steeler... Steeler really reminds me of Padme, I'll tell you that much. Um, well... But... Oh, here we go. Don't jump in.
1: Don't I, I'm in. just you know, you say that and then I sort of think, well, I mean, they're, they're not the same character by any stretch, but they, I think they do share some similar qualities. You know, they're both, both good leaders, I'd say, and they're both, you know, willing to pick up arms when the situation arises. I would say Stila is much more of a, a warrior than Padme and Padme is much more a, a dip, diplomat than Stila. Um, but you know, I, 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 they they share some similar uh, qualities, some similar admirable admirable qualities that that make them uh, important characters to have in a in a, a leadership group. I would say.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think combination of those characteristics is, of course, very important. And yes. I think we can both concur that at the end of the day, the right leader was selected out oh, of yeah. the. Candidates which were offered to us if it was an election and I'd certainly be voting Steelers way.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh, and I, I, I'll get, i throw you this question then. What did you make of the, of the interaction between her and, and Lux Bonteri in particular? Do you think that you were fond or, um, you could, empathize and understand where both the characters were coming from in terms of the the kind of i don't want to say love aspect but at least a betrothal aspect between the two of them or do you think it was a little bit unfounded and, and really came out in the blue
1: well I, you know I, I think anytime you you have characters that you haven't met before there or you haven't seen in a long time it, with the case of lux I, I think there are going to be aspects of the character of their relationships and of their characteristics that are surprising to the audience. And this was, this was one of them. You know, it was, uh, it was just one of those situations where, you know, it was the old bait and switch. You know, we see Ahsoka and Lux together and we think, oh, well, based on the last time they were together, well, you know, here's Ahsoka's test of she's going to be tested to leave the Jedi Order to follow her heart and yada, yada, yada. Instead, we kind of have this situation where she has to deal with I don't know if jealousy is the right term. You know, if she's jealous of Stila, she clearly gets over it. You know, she's able to, to deal with it. And she even forms some kind of, you know, relationship with Stila where they clearly respect each other at the, at the very least respect each other. And, uh, you know, it it did just kind of, it was just kind of the, uh, you, you know, it was just sort of a surprise. And I think it, you know, it makes sense. You know, luck's, can't sit around and wait for Ahsoka all day. He also knows that she's a Jedi, and they can't really act on it. They're, they're not Anakin and Padme, I mean. Let's be honest. Um, they, uh, if, if, and you know, he goes back to Andron, and he's in these intense situations with this, with this, um, uh, uh powerful and, uh, and attractive woman, then, then then sure, why not? You know, he can certainly get into a relationship with her. And it didn't seem, you know, it, 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 was a little bit strange at first because it's not what we were expecting, but I, I don't think there was anything particularly weird about their relationship. It, I do think it was another one of the classic Star Wars relationships of being born out of sort of conflict where, um, you know, more than, more than anything, it would have just, it would have, uh, fallen apart when peacetime came around, sort of much in the same way that Obi-Wan Satine or, or, uh, Anakin and Padme sort of did when that whenever they were sort of down times, is when they started sort of bickering and arguing with each other. So, I, I, but overall, I don't think there was anything strange about it. I don't know. Did, did you? Was there, was there, did you have a problem with their relationship? Oh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, I had an
0: issue with the relationship. I just thought it was interesting to see how those two two characters, how the bond between those two characters really formulated because obviously we've already seen that Lux and Ahsoka had their ties in the previous episode that they were involved in A Friend in Need as mm-hmm. well as what we've already seen in season three and it seemed as though that it was introducing this new relationship between Lux and Steela, which at first I thought really came out of the blue and... And I thought that at first, Steela was really going to be this militant figure who would serve to be part of this love triangle between Lux, Ahsoka, and uh, and herself, Steela. Yeah. So I I thought it was interesting how the dynamic really shifted to focusing on, um, say, Lux's position as the focal point between uh, a love triangle, the focal point in a love triangle involving three other, two other characters, Ahsoka and Steela. And actually, it was on Steela. With, uh, you know, the love of her brother and then obviously, mm-hmm. um, Lux Bonteri and eventually she ascended a mantle where the mission really took priority over their relationship, but she still felt that fondness with him. So I'll, uh, I'll become kind of the question master for a quick minute, Dominic, and ask you this question as you probably would have <laughs> led into it afterwards anyhow, but I'll ask you, what did you make of, Mr. Lux Terry From when we've last seen him, obviously, the last moment that we witnessed him on screen in the Clone Wars TV series was him departing ways, holding his hand up to the glass with a soaker in that shuttle. Uh, no, or, or rather, he was in that escape pod. Yeah. Now we see him back on Onderon, seemingly his home planet, and looking to work to help a co- help the rebellion cause. Yeah. What did you how did you, you make of his progression the ca- the character arc progression really
1: Well I I do want to just quickly touch on the uh, love triangle thing again real quickly but then I'll get into get into Lux Uh I just want to say that the, the, this arc had all the trappings of a love love triangle but it never really manifested itself which was nice to see it didn't you know they kept the focus on 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 the characters what the characters were going through in terms of this fight and sort of the, some of the more political aspects of it as well, instead of, um, you know, devolving into, you know, who likes who and, and who, who, who kissed who and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. I, I think it was more interesting to, uh, to stay away from that when they could have easily done it. Um, but I, I, I don't know if it necessarily would have helped the arc. Who knows? Maybe it could have, but uh, I, I really like the way it played out without it. Um, because there was still there was still love story, as you mentioned, um, uh, between Lux and Stila and, and there was the sort of the sibling love between uh Stila and Saw. Um but talking about Lux, uh yeah, his his character progression, you know, he's clearly been straightened out since the last time we saw him. You know, he's not thinking about joining Death Watch anymore. He's not all about killing Dooku, you know, he sort of it sort of seems like he left Ahsoka there and he went back to Andron and he sort of you know he Maybe maybe he met up with these rebels right away, and and they sort of helped him get over this, uh you know, just supreme hatred for Dooku, and instead sort of helped him turn that into something else. You know, this this desire to liberate his own planet. You know, because well, if he wants to strike a blow at Dooku, liberating his home planet, the planet that his mother died for, essentially, um, that's a pretty good way to start. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, we, we do see a sort of a natural progression for him of, you know, he went from, you know, sort of spoiled kid to, you know, he had his brush with death watch, um, to now he's sort of taken that and is, is using all of his experiences for the good of the people. And I, I think that is, uh, you know, that's the sign of a, you know, someone, a true leader was probably what his mother did or would have done. And, uh. I think like like Den Dub says, you know, his mother would be proud. Um but but what was your what was your take on, on where Lux has been? Or where Lux is now, I guess, would be the right term.
0: Yeah, I think Lux's position at this point in time, you've raised a number of good points there, Dominic. I think that it's it's really interesting to see where he was and, and where he is now. I mean when we saw him he was just the, the boy of well, he's just the son of a, of a senator, Mina Bonteri, and he's faced quite a tormenting uh, upbringing since then. Really, in the sense that he lost his mother to yeah. a, a separatist covert operation, which ended in her disi- well being killed, yeah. uh, being assassinated. He then joined in with the with the Mandalorians, the Death Watch, as it were, with Pre Vizsla and his gang. Yeah. Uh, clearly, that was uh, as a path which didn't suit him, nope. and 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 it, and it represents a change in direction in Lux's story. Following his mother's death, he doesn't really know where to go. But on Onderon, he seems to have much grander purpose, and it seems as though he is far more alert and aware to what he wants to become. And at that time, it's toppling the Onderon regime um in order to establish a free society. It was his home planet. He's got ties towards there. And then he becomes, and then at the end of the arc, he's a senator of Onderon. So yeah. I think his character arc is, is very interesting. And I find it's, it's, it's as you said, I, I like the fact that the Clone Wars team have highlighted and put concerted efforts towards focusing on the ascension of Lux Terry politically or rather um, militarily, but, but based upon the mission at hand, yeah. not the love story which it could have evolved into. And I think there were times when people felt that the story of the Luxoka story arc <laughs> would really build or be built further in this particular arc anytime lux was brought on the screen ahsoka was there and everyone put two and two together and thought oh this is it this is when they forge their relationship this is when ahsoka abandons the jedi ways and joins with lux and they uh or or either that or similar to anakin they have a secret love affair well that doesn't materialise, and I don't think it ever should and would have materialised
1: <laughs> based upon those two characters. Really, yeah. I think
0: that Lux was again—he he, he obviously had, well, he put the mission at the forefront at hand. Obviously, he had ties with Steeler, but he—he he still he still understood what was necessary. And after Steeler's death, he's not inconsolable. He's looking to the future, thinking that Onderon is a bright future, and. Her spirit will live on, yeah. similar way to Ahsoka puts prioritizes prioritizes the mission, and obviously Anakin keeps on reminding Ahsoka to, yeah. <laughs> to reminding her of her purpose, why she's there. Which again, a little bit hypocritical from Anakin once again <laughs> yeah. that he of all characters <laughs> should be the one to go and tell Ahsoka that. But then again, Anakin does follow the philosophy, doesn't he? Of yeah. do as I say, not do as I do, yeah. so I okay, get maybe it does make sense for Anakin <laughs> to say that. Um, but uh, yeah, linking on to that point, I know I know we're discussing about Lux here, Dominic, but you make of all of that between or the the dynamics, I should say, between Anakin and Ahsoka in this arc, particularly in relation to you know, don't you know, trust your feelings and focus on a mission at hand. Uh, he asked, her, Are you sure you don't want to depart for Coruscant? Or, um, and, uh, you know, kind of curb your, your feelings and attachment. So what, what did you make of all of that?
1: Well, I think for, for one, I think Anakin knows what he's doing is wrong. I think that's, that's, that, that's the thing about the Anakin Padme relationship is they both know what they're doing is wrong. Uh, that's why they're both so keen to hide it. And so I think, uh, Anakin sees Ahsoka is going through this. And I think Anakin better than most probably rec- <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. Sorry about that. Anakin probably better than most, uh, recognizes the signs of, you know, what's going on here. And so he's, you know, he's, he's, tr- he's probably trying to help her through the whole situation. And, uh, and you know, it, it tur- turns out that she doesn't really need his help. And I think again, just going back to that love tri- triangle idea is that the- I think that's one of the strengths of this arc is that they could have easily done that. Um, but to go in this other direction is almost more interesting. Because, you know, you, you have Ahsoka, she clearly had feelings for Lux, and, and I think, you know, Anakin can tell that, and that's why he keeps asking her about it. And then for her to then be confronted with the fact that this is not going to work out, she kind of has to face heartbreak. It seems like that's something that a Jedi has to face, but she doesn't have to face it, like, really intensely. She, maybe not even heartbreak, more like disappointment in this. And so sort of, she's able to sort of get through this and, and take from this learning experience. Um, that, that all Jedi have to have that Anakin thought, you know, the rules are for everybody else. I'm, I'm just going to do what I want. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, to, to go in this other direction where, you know, she, instead of having to deal with, you know, these romantic feelings kind of has to sort of see, you know, basically be reminded of what she can't do. And, you know, clearly she comes out of the other end for the better because, you know, by the end of the episode, by the end of the arc, she doesn't seem to really be care, to care about this too much anymore. You know, she still probably cares for Lux as a friend, but you don't get the impression that she has really any more romantic aspirations for him. Uh, by the time the fourth episode rolls around when, you know, they climb onto the, the back of that beast and, you know, she punches him in the shoulder, you know, buddy, buddy kind of thing. Um, and yeah, then just to go back to Anakin, uh, since, since that's what she brought up, Um, Yeah, I think it's, again, it's a a bit of a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do situation, but it's also Anakin wanting to help Ahsoka because he recognizes what she is going to have to go through or she may have to go through. Um, And I think, you know, Anakin, I don't think... I think Anakin and Padme are both under a lot of stress from that relationship, and I don't think they really want anyone else to have to go through that. And so they're going to, you know, Anakin is going to... Help is trying to help Ahsoka not have to experience the same levels of pain and stress that he does because really part of you know keeping that relationship a secret I think is part of what ultimately drives Anakin to the dark side is that you know the idea that he you know Palpatine knows about the relationship and he is able to you know Anakin will sort of realize oh well if I side with this guy then I can just be myself I don't have to hide this huge aspect of my life anymore um but uh, what was your take on that?
0: Yeah, the Anakin-Ahsoka dynamic, I thought, was very, very intriguing, to be honest. And, of course, Anakin can relate more than most Jedi, if not better than anybody else yeah. in the Jedi Order, about what Ahsoka's going through. And as you said, it seems to be some sort of trial, really, that you have to go through this, this detachment from your feelings uh, of love towards somebody else, or at least um tender feelings towards somebody else. And I mean Obi Wan of course has had problems in that regard as well with regards yeah. to Satine And he's had to go through that. Um as he stated when he was with QuiGon um and when they when they first met each other uh, on the let me let me rephrase that. When Anakin Oh, Anakin, I'm losing the plot here, Dominic. I'm going to have to cut that (laughs) bit out, won't I? When Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon go on their mission to Mandalore and meet Satine for the first time, and clearly Obi-Wan and Satine become quite betrothed, Obi-Wan states, isn't he, in the the, um, Voyage of Temptation episode that he would have abandoned a Jedi Order for her, in a similar way that Anakin was prepared to abandon a Jedi Order for Padme. And clearly Ahsoka and Lux are having similar feelings here, and... I think Anakin's just trying to reassure her that he understands what she's going through and that Ahsoka really needs to trust her feelings, that, that, that she needs to focus on the mission at hand rather than letting her feelings consume her too much um, towards, or the feelings that she has towards Lux. When Ahsoka, in shock or rather surprise, um towards Anakin when she when he says that I understand what you're going through, do you not think that Soka maybe had any inkling before this? And in terms of that line, even if she didn't have any inkling, do you think that she then recognizes that there's something going on between Anakin and Padme there in particular?
1: I think she recognizes that there is something going on there, much in the same way that Obi-Wan does. I don't think they quite realize the extent to which it's going on, but I do think that they, uh, both, that they both, as well as Master, Master Yoda, I think they also recognize that Anakin has these intense feelings for Padme and perhaps has acted on them on more than one occasion, but I don't think they quite understand the extent. You know, there's I think Ahsoka kind of picked up on the trail earlier in the series, you know, she she says to Padme, It's no wonder you two are such good friends and, you know, I I wonder if sort of from that point on she sort of began to put some of the pieces together in her mind of, Okay, there seems to be something a bit more going on here and, you know, maybe she was able to sense a little something through the force and yeah, you know, there's all that kind of stuff going on. So I I wouldn't be surprised I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be surprised if she has uh some inklings about what's going on and um you know she she seems to indicate that as well when 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 she's walking away from the Jedi temple, you know. She says that she she realizes or she says that she knows that Anakin has 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 reason to at least think about doing that. So
0: Yeah, I think that in terms of Ahsoka's inkling towards a relationship between Anakin and Padme, uh, at this point, she must, she must hazard a, at least a conjecture as to what it could be. And I'm, I'm just trying to think if there are any other episodes before the Ahsoka arc where she sees Anakin and Padme interacting. I mean, maybe a lot of it is more off-screen, but I don't really remember anything on-screen, at least. But obviously, this is the this is the one of the pivotal moments before Ahsoka's final line to Anakin where she says, I know, when she abandons the Jedi Order and uh, Anakin stating that, you know, I I know, I understand what you're going through uh, more than most people. Um, And when she says, I know, I'm assuming that she recognises that Anakin and may have a relationship there. Mm. This is the first time I can recall in the Yonderan arc, however, that Ahsoka... Finally, Ahsoka and Anakin finally have their interaction. uh, Or at least implicit um, mention of the fact that Anakin has emotional ties or an attachment elsewhere than where he should if it was based upon the Jedi Code and ethos. Let's just put it that way. So I think it's it's really fascinating to look back in hindsight at how much Anakin is really willing to... To let Ahsoka in on really, yeah. bearing in mind he's not told anybody about this, I think mean, this is the closest that Anakin has come to really divulging his true feelings to to anyone, not even Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, so I think it, I think it is quite quite fascinating to examine
1: that. Yeah, for for sure, for sure. I, I, um, you know, I, I I think it's it's one of those things that's going to kind of remain a mystery as to how much Ahsoka knows and when. Um, like you said, I think a lot of it takes place off screen, but who knows, maybe this is sort of that moment where she sort of realizes that Anakin is kind of, you know, really sort of prodding her to, to this, uh, you know, to, to see what she, how she feels about what she's going through with this, with this guy. And sort of that helps her sort of begin to put together those pieces that she maybe, um, had in the back of her mind from, from previous seasons. Um, but before we wrap up, I do want to uh, talk very quickly about the death of Stila because I I think this is one of sort of the most tragic deaths in the entire series because it, it it just kind of happens, you know it's it's a bit of a sacrifice in that she's you know she's saving Dendub, but it's it's also not really it's kind of a bit of a a freak accident accident and it kind of speaks. Uh, in a way that the show hasn't really before to the um, to the costs of war you know where you know these people are are being killed and it's just by on accident you know she is she's this fierce warrior. there's no denying that. she is definitely out there to you know kick some ass and kill some droids and you know she's done all these incredible things during the arc and should just go down because a gunship crashed crashed in the wrong place. And, you know, basically that's, it was just a freak accident and it, it sort of shows that, you know, people are willing to, to pay the ultimate price. And even when that, you know, it, it, it well, it helps the cause in some sense, it, it also isn't, you know, she didn't, you know, lock a bunch of people on the other side of a door and, and take on a whole bunch of droids. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like heavy sacrifice from season one, you know, it was a, it was a different kind of death and it was, just really a tragic one. There wasn't, there didn't seem to be, you know, this, this arc could have very easily ended with a very similar result with the droids pulling out and, and, and all that and, and Steel is still alive. But to end on this, I think it just, it, it was the show, to, show sort of reminding us that yes, this is an actual war and, you know, characters are going to die sometimes for no rhyme or reason other than to, you know, remind us that it happens. Yeah. So. I think- Oh, sorry, go ahead. I
0: I, I was going to say I completely agree with you there. I think it's just, you never know, the Force can work in mysterious ways. I mean, was that ship meant to crash there? I mean, you can't necessarily go into too much of uh, speculation and conjecture regarding that, but it seemed as though it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah. In the sense that the ship crashed, she hang on, and was about to to drop, and you think, oh, Ahsoka's going to save her. And then the gunship shoots the stoker. She falls down. It's, I mean, it was it was just seemingly quite interesting how it just seemed fatal, destined that that Steeler was gonna meet her end.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was a. Uh, it, it was again. You know, it it wasn't. You know, it wasn't a a, a death that you know was was pointless. You know, it, she can still be used on on Onderon. Her memory can be sort of kept alive as sort of a, a rallying cry for the people to rebuild their planet and to make it better than it was before. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, I don't mean to say that there was, there was, uh you know, that was a pointless death or anything like that. It's it, there, there was, you know, there was, it, it, there was a purpose behind it, but you know, in, in the, in the actual battle, it seemed to just sort of happen. It wasn't a, you know, an, an epic sacrifice the way that some characters go down. Instead, it was a, it was just a really tragic one. Uh, so, is there anything else you want to bring up, or shall we uh, get into our favorite quotes?
0: Uh, no, I think we're there, Dominic. All we'll right, get into our favorite quotes.
1: Let's uh, let's get into favorite quotes. So, this is the part of the show where we uh, we single out some of the best lines from from this entire arc. And, uh, uh, Kieran, are you are you ready, or shall I go first?
0: I am going to go first. Excellent, I believe, and I've got a fantastic line. From our old friend Hondo Anaka, who didn't yeah. actually really mention this episode, but then he didn't have a major pivotal role. He just he just said some very, very cool lines.
1: Nice little cameo, yeah.
0: <laughs> um so for Hondo Anaka, he said um <laughs> when he lands on the well, when he lands on Onderon, and uh, he's he's just giving Ahsoka and the rebels their missile launchers, and he says uh, in relation to the missiles, Ahsoka asked him, were well, they paid for? And he was like, well, very handsome. Oh my, look at the time. When my work is done. Because at that point, everyone starts shooting at yeah. him. So it's like, yep, I'm done. I'm leaving now.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. I remember that in the, uh, in the season four trailer and it was a great moment and, and, and it turned out to just be just as great in, in these episodes. And yeah, again, and, and, you know, which I'll just mention this quickly about Hondo. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about the, the Jedi kind of wanting to help, but not actually, you know, they, you know, Anakin was able to send these, these missile launchers through Hondo when, You know, why couldn't he have delivered them himself and, and, and stayed and fought the battle as well? Again, it kind of goes back to, to all that. So just to tie in Hondo with everything we've been talking about, because I've got a Hondo line as well. And it's when Anakin goes to visit him on Florum and, uh, and he, he tells him, you know, what he needs done. And Hondo says, and is that all I am to you, Jedi? A delivery boy? Ah, I thought that was just another, another classic Hondo line and, and great delivery from, from Jim Cummings.
0: Absolutely, I've got another Hondo line. Oh, good! (laughs) Uh, I do like the um, the line when he first lands and he he sees Steeler and he says, "You could be my new favourite spies." (laughs) (laughs) Just the way that it's performed is so so good, and um, I can't not love Hondo, can you? Let's be honest. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, apart from in the next arc. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and even then, there are times where you can't you can't you can't hate him so. oh
0: no like you can't hate him you can see him as a bad
1: guy but you can't hate him yeah absolutely and uh well i'll i'll, I'll break the the trend and i've got a, i got a quote from from old dendub here um when he this is from the beginning of the the last episode where he says our destiny is tied to them speaking of the rebels uh and this planet and we must rise up together to protect it and uh, i just love that it was a it was a good sort of revolutionary cry from from the uh the de- Deplaced King or deposed King. I don't know if that's the right term, but I'm going to use it anyways. <laughs>
0: Very true. And i i that's, that's me done with the lines, if I'm being honest. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think mean, there are a lot of good lines, but, uh, yeah. You know, you've got, you got to choose the right ones for these type of quote situations. So, yeah. Sometimes being picky is important.
1: Yeah. I was kind says of. Says the
0: guy, says the guy who, uh, <laughs> put, put in, put in the quote, how good to see yeah, you again. Yeah, want, But yeah. there you go. <laughs>
1: yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, this was one of those arcs. It's, it's really good, but there weren't, that many quotable moments but you know what quotable moments aren't nece- aren't all that aren't aren't all that necessarily quotable quotable moments aren't the be-all end-all that's what i was looking for <laughs> it's still early guys it's uh, still yeah. early yeah. it's it's 9 a.m at this point it's it's work it's it's yeah. one o'clock here yeah, <laughs> you're like i'm i'm thinking about lunch i'm like i'm i want some breakfast <laughs> all right i think that is as good a place as any to to wrap things up talk about breakfast um so uh before we before we go it's time for final thoughts and score out of 10 so kieran final thoughts score out of 10 on the on arc
0: final thoughts i am going to give this arc a 9 out of 10 And that's mainly because in hindsight, I like how this arc lays the foundations for a greater story arc, which we will later see in Star Wars Rebels, the TV series. There is a fantastic amount of content here, which is so applicable to really changing how we perceive the Star Wars saga. In particular, looking at Ahsoka and how her role becomes so pivotal in the formation of the Rebel Alliance, along with the Jedi, of course, Anakin, as you've stated, Dominic, he's at the forefront of this, (laughs) and in a way, he's one of the main protagonists that sets up this Rebel cell. And in a way, institutes the rebellion that will uh, uh, backfire and end the rule again. Chosen one, mm, maybe there was something in that. But there we go. Uh, <laughs> I also think that the action set pieces in this were absolutely fantastic. Tipping points. What a great, what a great amount of visual. There was for the audience to actually indulge themselves in, particularly with those gunships as well, in particular, which looks so, so menacing. And um, I love the change in design, the design element of introducing these new technological uh, implements and accessories, which the separatists had occupied. And it just keeps it being fresh and new and vibrant. And I thought that was absolutely superb. So, that combined of course with the character developments of, you know, Lux as well and looking at Steeler and, and Saw King Den Dub and how their roles of formulating this rebel cell will later have greater ramifications in the, in the timeline of the Star Wars universe as we hit the rise of the Galactic Empire. Dominic, I will throw it over to you then. I've given my score or this uh, score for this arc a 9 out of 10, but your score and final thoughts.
1: Alright, I'm going to give this episode an 8.5 out of Or these episodes, I should say, an 8.5 out of 10. Uh, just some really good stuff. Uh, some great action. Like, we didn't even talk about it, but that that final episode, man, really, really good stuff. I remember back at celebration, celebration, celebration six, celebration six. Uh, they showed a clip of that at one of the clone wars preview panels that George Lucas was at. And, uh, and George was just, just raving about it, saying how it was better than avatar and George, you are right. Better than Avatar, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, and as, as George said, let's see Jim Cameron do that for a fraction of the price. Uh, uh, but yeah, just some great characters. Uh, it was good just, to see uh, see Lux again. Also, uh, it was fun to, to meet Stila and Saw. And, you know, really, like I said, a really tragic ending to uh, to a complicated arc that dealt with some, some bigger issues, not only in the Star Wars galaxy, but in our world as well. And like I said, it's always good when Star Wars gets people thinking about those bigger issues. And, and that's when Star Wars is at its best. And that's kind of what George set out to do in the beginning was create these stories that would make kids think again. And, and I think that's really wonderful that they're continuing that or that they continued that on the clone wars. Um, also, uh, I, again, just great, good, good to see more Ahsoka development uh, and, and just an overall great episode. Love the look of Anderon. Andron looked gorgeous. We didn't even mention it, uh, but the, the city of Isis there would looked like a real city with so many people, uh, occupying it everywhere. And it, it just, everything about it, uh, this episode was, these episodes was really, really good. So yeah, a solid 8.5 out of 10. So that will wrap things up for this episode. So we want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, new episodes will be uh well we should actually tell you there's actually going to be not only is there a new episode this week but there's going to be a new episode next week we're temporarily at least switching to a wednesday release schedule so uh as you're listening to this assuming you're listening to it when it comes out on wednesday um in seven days time we will have our next episode out discussing the younglings arc and that is, that is one of my favorite arcs. I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Uh, and we have a, we have a special guest lined up for that. And it's, uh, it's going to be cool. So definitely check that out next Wednesday. Uh, Kieran, why don't you, uh, let the people know what is coming up on Expression FM? And you have a new position over there, don't you?
0: I do indeed, Dominic. I'm now the training manager on the Expression FM committee, which is actually yeah. fantastic. And, uh, I'm very much looking forward to working with a number of the other members on the committee. We've got a grand total of, I believe, 18 people on the committee, so it's quite a big one. But uh, I, I really cannot wait to start that, um, which will begin next term. That's when we will commence our official titles of these, uh, of, of these <coughs> positions on the committee. But in terms of expression, we're winding down at the moment. It's coming to the last week and a lot of the shows are reaching their final stages as from Friday onwards, the studio is actually going to be renovated and remodeled in preparation for the studio radio, student radio conference, which will take place around mid-April time, just after Celebration finishes, actually. Oh, so everyone's really gearing up for that, which will be absolutely fantastic. So I'm hoping to return briefly for that. It's going to be a bit of a journey as uh, the ki- it actually kicks off officially, the student Radio Conference, on April the 20th. So I won't make that day, but I'm hoping to make the remaining two days. So my goodness me, from Monday the 13th up until the 22nd, I'm going to be absolutely <laughs> manic and and uh, absolutely shattered by the end of it. But yeah, it's it's great stuff on Expression Um, and as I said we're winding down but we'll be back from the end of April onwards and you can still get in touch via our facebook page which is www.expression.fm or on our twitter hat uh, on our that, website yeah, again website. I'm, I'm kind of all over the place today <laughs> when it comes to articulating myself but there we go the website is www.expression.fm and our twitter handle is at expression fm so if you want to get in touch via any of those mediums feel free to do so And Dominic,
1: is there not a podcast that you may want to impart to the listeners about? I wonder what it could be. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, be sure to check out uh, this week's episode of the Star Wars Underworld podcast. We'll be recording live, as we always do, Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on channel 1138.com. And then it will be released the next... Friday, or the next day, I should say, Friday, on the iTunes feed and StarWarsUnderworld.com. You don't want to miss this episode. It will feature my interview with Return of the Jedi, Boba Fett, stunt performer, Dickie Beer, uh, recorded at Toronto Comic-Con. We talked about, uh, really about Dickie's career and, and working on Jedi and all those crazy costumes. And of course, of course, we talked about old Boba Fett. So uh, don't, don't want to miss that uh, that, of course, as I mentioned, Thursday, recorded live, available Friday on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to the Star Wars Underworld iTunes feed. That's where you'll get that show and this show. That's where you get two shows for the price of one, and that price is absolutely free. I uh, also want to remind you to like this page on Facebook, facebook.com slash uh, – cl- or just search for The Clone Wars Strikes Back. Uh, and if you want to keep a little Clone Wars in your news feed – uh, that is the page to like. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at TCW Strikes Back, at DominicJ25, and at C Dungan6. Uh, also want, also if you want to send us an email with your thoughts on, well, either, either the Andron arc or the Young Links arc, you can do so. Uh, Back at gmail.com. Uh, also we should mention our other podcast, Watches of Westeros, still on hiatus, but we'll be back very soon with our big Preview of season five, and then there'll be new episodes uh, as Game of Thrones continues uh, with season five all through April and May, and I guess June, probably, maybe. No, I guess not into July. <laughs> um, then they'll, we'll continue our our uh, our look back at previous seasons as once season five is done. So be sure to check that out. Just search for the watches of Westeros on iTunes or Facebook or Twitter or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, so again uh during the week be sure to hit up StarWarsUnderworld.com for all the latest breaking Star Wars news including Celebration uh Episode 7 The Force Awakens Rebels books comics video games who knows what else there's been some hints that maybe there are some more Clone Wars stories coming and uh uh, we didn't mention this uh, on the show yet, but uh, we should mention it now. The novel Dark Disciple by Christy Golden, which is based on some unproduced scripts, is actually based on eight episodes of the series, not four as we originally thought. So it's two arcs, two arcs in one novel. So we're, we're really looking forward to that. That book comes out in July. So be sure to pick it up when it hits show, when it hit, hits bookstores then. So thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Like I said, we'll be back next week with The Youngling's Arc. Be sure to tune in then. So thank you, everybody, for listening, and may the Force be with you.